You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I started season two with an episode about Marcel Duchamp's Fountain from 1917 because that piece was sort of the consensus pick amongst various tastemakers as the most influential work of the 20th century. Now, to start season three, I actually decided to pick a lesser-known artist— who I think was probably as influential, if not more. I am talking about the artist who sort of invented the approach of all over painting, the drip painting method. And it's probably not the one you're thinking. Because this was the artist who showed Jackson Pollock what it's all about. I'm talking about Janet Sobel. I feel like who art ed. Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. I thought it's a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood. And joining me today, I have Garrett McCorkle, uh, the host of No Country for History, a history podcast for all you history buffs out there. Thank you, Garrett, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And of course, right off the bat, when someone is nice enough to slum it here in my podcast, I want to make sure that I am shilling for you appropriately. No country for history. You're focusing specifically on American history, correct? Yes, I focus on lesser known parts of American history, um, things that you probably wouldn't have heard in history class. I always love those obscure facts. That's why I started my Fun Fact Friday minisodes last year. I'm probably going to try to keep going with the obscure stuff, but I will I'll be certain to listen to No Country for History. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. I appreciate every listen. Yeah. It's been a lot of work and it, it's it's been turning out pretty great. So thanks again for having me. It's It's great to be here. Always happy to. And now on that topic of sort of obscure and lesser known history, this is one that I'm going to be honest, we're talking today about an artist I was not familiar with until very recently, Janet Sobel. She's not a household name, but she is one of the rare artists I can honestly say made me stop and sort of rethink what I prize in art and what I appreciate about art history. Um, for those who have heard of Janet Sobel, she is 
probably best known as almost a footnote in the story of Jackson Pollock. And the reason she seems to be sort of obscure is because Jackson Pollock is credited with inventing the drip painting technique and abstract expressionist movement that just blew up in the mid 20th century. And Janet Sobel did it first. And not not only did she do it first, she actually um, was displaying work publicly in galleries that were viewed by Jackson Pollock. He commented on her work and how amazing it was. Um, So before I get back to that, and I don't want to fall into that trap of, you know, talking about her in relation to Pollock, I just think it is interesting to know she was doing it first like in history, it's really hard to to do that too, to not try to compare somebody to another figure. Um, definitely happens with more obscure people. And I think Janet Sobel is one of them because like you, I'd heard of Jackson Pollock. Um, wasn't until preparing for this that I heard of, of Janet Sobel. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because like, I think as we start to reevaluate some of these lesser known figures, I really don't like validating someone because they were like someone else, you know, like I want to look at them in their own right. But in this particular case, I think it is worth understanding that history and that relationship dynamic because of the fact that at least for me, part of the significance of that whole abstract expressionist movement and the invention of drip painting was the invention aspect, the creativity of it. It was one of those moments where it it was sort of a watershed where it was like this aha moment where people started to rethink what is painting and what is art all about. And so kind of who came up with that innovation, it matters. And so talking about Sobel, um, she was born in 1894 and she actually is not from America, although her artistic development and her artistic career did occur while she was in America. She was born in Ukraine, uh, 1894. Her name at birth was Jenny Lakovsky. Um, And this is one of those things I could not find, although I would imagine, and maybe you can back me up on this, I'm guessing changed her name probably when immigrating to the United States. I think that was a common practice in that time period. Am I right? Yeah, especially um, you say is she she immigrated um, after her father was killed um, in 1908. So um, in America around this time, you see so many people, especially from Eastern Europe, um, changing their names to have a more English sounding, American sounding name. Um, and I can almost guarantee you that's what she was doing as well. Um, if she walked into um, New York City with a name like Jenny Lakovsky, um, it kind of would have put a target on her back right from the beginning. Um, America around this time had a lot of nativist movements of America for Americans um, would not have been friendly to, to, to her uh, at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, and there was generally a drive to assimilate, but I, I didn't even talk about why she left Ukraine. But yeah, she she left because of um, basically anti-Semitic people who were attacking her family. Her father, her father was killed, and I can I can certainly imagine in that scenario you would want a fresh start 
in a new place and even a new name for that sense of safety, security, and a little bit of belonging in your adopted homeland. And so she adopted the more American-sounding Janet Sobel when she came here in 1908. Um, so just thinking about that, she was, what, 14 years old then at that time? I mean, I just cannot fathom moving halfway around the world when you're like a freshman in high school and starting off in a new, in a new country where you don't, um, you know, new language, all of that. When you really put it in that way as a freshman in high school, that really hits home. Um, 14 years old um, today, you know, like, like, like you aren't by no means would somebody consider you an adult. Um, but obviously, Sobel had extreme challenges um, that kind of forced her to, um, to, to have those tough decisions made for her. Um, yeah. Uh, incredible, incredible story of, of how she got here. Yeah. And so then, you know, she didn't come here as an artist. She came here and she began basically making art. It seems like as a hobby, she was what we would call a self-taught artist. She did not study art formally in an art school and she didn't really begin painting until she was about 45 years old. So um, just chronologically, we're talking about 1939. She basically started off painting traditional Ukrainian sort of folk art. Um, in my sort of narrative, because I always like to think of things as like a story, I am envisioning her just kind of probably a little bit on some level homesick. You know, you you came over, you've got all these memories of your childhood in a totally different place. And as someone who is not quite 45 yet, but getting there faster than I would like to, to admit, there's some comfort in those things that I enjoyed growing up. And I can, I just imagine, you know, she's got her own family and she wants to carry on certain traditional elements that, and starts making artwork inspired by that folklore. But of course, she was a really brilliant innovator in art. And so she wasn't just replicating traditional folk art. She wasn't just doing what she had seen growing up. She was sort of carving out her own path. And, you know, she developed this style that was a little bit avant-garde. She started using the tools that she had on hand. Um, and her husband was a jewelry, jewelry manufacturer. I guess he was, ma he made like costume jewelry. So like, not like super fine stuff, but he had all sorts of things, you know, pipettes and enamel paints around. And she basically experimented with like dripping these types of paints around the canvas. And then she would add details and add figurative elements in there, add recognizable stuff. And through that experimentation, it, sort of became more and more abstract. Um, critics at the time called this sort of the first example of what we would call all over painting. Now, are you familiar with the term all over painting? No, yeah. but I might have a good guess what it means, <laughs> yeah. but I would trust you to explain uh, better than I could. <laughs> so like, it's one of those things where, you know, art, I always find a little bit ridiculous in some of the terms that we use all over painting is kind of what it sounds like you're painting all over the canvas. And to a lot of people, th you would think like, well, isn't every painting painting all over the canvas? Um, but the, I think the big difference here would be, you would think of it as 
every inch of the canvas sort of has equal visual weight or significance. So like in a normal painting by, let's say, you know, Monet, the haystacks in the field, you can tell what he's focusing on. It's that haystack in the field or, um, you know, the Mona Lisa, you know, you're supposed to draw your attention on that seated figure, Mona Lisa, but with an all over painting, it's just all over the map. You're covering the whole canvas. And that was kind of a breakthrough to say like every inch of it is equally important, kind of a democratic principle if you think about it. And so she started doing that and her son recognized the brilliance of her work, even though, and I, I really hate to even use this term, but I think it, it is for historical purposes worth recognizing a lot of her work was lumped into what people would call primitive at that time, because basically folk art work of self-taught artists was for a while deemed outsider art. It was outside the mainstream, outside the academy. It didn't have that seal of approval of a sophisticated work by a master artist. Um, and I think that's kind of why she got lost to history for a while. Um, I would, I would also say I, I could imagine a big part of it might be her being an immigrant as well from not necessarily just from a, um, you know, it's not like she's coming from France or, or uh, great Britain, one of these countries that more or less the people easily assimilated into American culture when they, when they immigrated here, um, she's coming from Eastern Europe, which, um, a lot of Americans, especially um, around the 1940s, um, were starting to be a little afraid of with mm -hmm. the rise and strength of the Soviet Union. Um, I imagine that that fed into it uh, to some degree. Oh, Again, certainly. Pure, pure guessing, though. Well, no, but I mean, if you think about it, there always has been, and and I, I hate to dwell on the negative aspects so much, but like there always has been a little bit of a cultural hierarchy within, within the arts and society, you know, think about the fact that, like I said, her work was labeled as sort of primitive, whereas because it was traditional Ukrainian folk art and I can't imagine people looking at, at something and saying, oh, that's traditional French art. That's so primitive. You know, it just, there are certain cultures that were valued and prized a little bit more. Um, you know, whenever I want to convince people that I am smart and sophisticated, I drop in certain French or, um, you know, German words that nobody else knows. Like, you know, just right. anytime you say zeitgeist, people are like, well, he must know what he's talking about. I'm, I'm bowing out of this conversation. Right. Or, or you mentioning a Monet earlier, like yeah. that. It's just such a, it sounds so classy and artistic. Exactly. Um, and it just has such a, a grip because, um, and I get, we'll get into this later when we actually look at the paintings, but um, if I'm correct at the time, Monet was kind of, scoffed at when he first started creating stuff is that am i right in that or did i completely get that wrong oh no you're 100 percent correct he was okay. um he was dismissed the the term impressionist was used to make fun of the movement and specifically one of his paintings actually um and 
And actually at this time period, he was, <laughs> his career went full circle. You know, he, at this time, at this time, he was seen as kind of like quaint and old and like it, it was no longer shocking to people to be painting mm. the water lilies with the dabs of colors and everything like that. Um, this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com. It's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. And around this time, actually, is when we see essentially the the cultural powerhouse. It, it shifts from Paris to New York right around this time. And you know, when you think about what's going on in the 1940s, what's probably the first thing that pops into your head? World War II. World War II. And as you and I both know, um, Janet Sobel's not the only person to have left Europe because of safety concerns in World War II. A number of prominent artists got out of, got out of Europe. Um, and you know, some of them because of their Jewish ancestry, um, and some of them because of the fact that just uh, an interesting, obscure to many people fact, Hitler did not like modern art and modern artists. He was a failed artist himself. He could never get into the academy. And for that reason, he used art as propaganda, put on the, de the degenerate art show to make fun of modern artists and things like that. Um, you know, Picasso was a target among others. And um, so around that time, we see Piet Mondrian and numerous other artists are coming to America. And specifically, a lot of them landed in New York. And that's where it just so happens that Janet Sobel was living as she was painting. She was in the Bronx. And at that time, her son recognized her brilliance and started showing her work to other people. Um, you know, the prominent surrealist artist, Max Ernst, um, as well as Peggy Guggenheim. Um, the Guggenheim Museum is, you know, named for Peggy Guggenheim, one of the most major collectors of that time period huge tastemaker. She was putting together shows. She was supporting all sorts of different artists. Basically, if you had Peggy Guggenheim in your corner, you were 
you were in a good place as an artist. And Guggenheim considered Sobel to be one of the best female artists in America at that time. She included Sobel in a group show called The Women in 1945, and then gave Sobel her own show in 1946. So if you think about it, like she started painting around 1939, and by 1946, she had her own solo show in New York put on by Peggy Guggenheim. That's incredible. Like, that's a big deal. <laughs> like, few people could even hope to get close to that. No. Um, especially with all the adversity that she faced going up until um, until her work starts to get showed. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean... I got my bachelor's in coloring from a very prestigious university attached to a museum. I haven't had a solo show in New York. You know, I've had, I've had plenty of my work shown in, in enough places to feel all right with myself, but you know, I've been doing this a lot longer than Sobel has and nowhere near that level of success. I, I also just really appreciate that it was her son that sort of, because, you know, I might, I might be imagining, but I'm kind of uh, picturing her as someone whose art was rather personal to her. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't know if I, I just think it's really cool that that um, sort of this like star like this, the shooting star um, rise up um, just just sort of happens so quickly. Um, I it's just really cool, especially for someone that. Um, like you said at the beginning, many people have never really heard of outside of being in reference to Jackson Pollock. Yeah. And, and she, like I said, she had this meteoric rise. And again, when you think about it, it's not just that she started displaying her work then that's when she started painting, mm -hmm. you know, like for, for most of us, it would take that long just to kind of learn what, to know what you're doing, let alone start to get attention for it. And she was an innovator doing all sorts of stuff with those tools. She had her, her solo show. And unfortunately that rise kind of, she had almost as quick of a fall. Um, and one of the big reasons for it, from what I can gather is really just geography. And this might sound kind of absurd, but like one of the big things about the art world that people always say is, it's kind of who, you know, it's an insider's club. And the fact that like she moved out of New York city, moved to New Jersey, she was removed from that avant-garde art scene, just like physically removed from, from that scene. And I don't think she had enough stature and enough clout to maintain her career while not being in close proximity to all those other other people. Um, and the other thing is it, it seems like she kind of just like developed this aversion to oil paint at that time. And, you know, unfortunately like her legacy has largely been forgotten. Although I am glad to see just like uh, Hilma off Clint, I'm now starting to see more and more articles popping up about, you know, her significance because she was a significant artist. She was an innovator. And Jackson Pollock, I talked about before, he's credited with inventing drip painting. Um, but he invented 
he, I want to put giant air quotes, which I'm sure all the listeners can see and appreciate. He quote unquote invented drip painting in 1947, about a year after he went to a show and looked at the work of Janet Sobel and commented on how, how innovative her work was. Like he, he actually is quoted as saying it had a rather large impression on her or on him. And so like he commented on that influence and, and I think there's nothing wrong with having that influence. I think that's how we all learn and grow and develop. I just think it's really sad that while he recognized her brilliance, not everybody else did. And so I wanted to take time today to look at one of the brilliant pieces from that show, probably one that was particularly influential. Um, this is Milky Way from 1945. Um, I believe it's at MoMA now. So I always like to let the guest go first because I have been bullying the conversation so much and I'm sorry and always feel free to interrupt me anytime. What do you think of this piece? What's jumping out at you? Um, so immediately, um, I'm noticing the bright yellow that is in the foreground, or at least appears to be in the foreground, um, with a lot of pink at the bottom too. Um, I this is definitely how um, when most people say modern art, I think a thing, a piece like this, is what most people jump to. Do, do you know what I'm trying to say there? My, my art vocabulary is not up to snuff, but I think when most people say the words modern art, they envision something that looks like this. Yeah. I mean, this is that very abstract, um, leaning towards what, what we would call sort of non-objective. And I, I say leaning towards and not quite non-objective. The difference is abstract art comes from an artist's imagination, um, but it's generally rooted in something. And non-objective is where it's just about pure line shapes, colors, mm -hmm. and it's not meant to allude to anything specific. But because she gave this the title Milky Way, I imagine this is inspired by, you know, the galaxy, outer space, mm -hmm. you know, all of the images that at that time probably were new images coming from, you know, this, the telescopes that were getting much better and better at that time. Um, and we see these swirls of colors. Like you said, we see these yellows that are coming out um, and this does look like a Jackson Pollock type painting. This looks like a drip painting. I can see these organic swirls. It reminds me now we see a lot of people doing those acrylic pores that are so popular all over, mm -hmm. you know, YouTube and stuff like that. Yeah. It's so visually satisfying to see the paint flow across there. And I imagine her process was in some ways similar. Um, she was dripping painting, dripping paints on there. I, I think I've read different accounts that say like she would just lay on the floor next to the canvas and she would like use a vacuum and like pull and blow and do everything she could using whatever tools were around to create these ripples and waves and movement in the paint, which I find That's, really interesting. That is really innovative. I, I would have never 
in a million years imagine that a vacuum may have had something to do with this. Um, but going to, to what you said about um, this being more abstract than non-objective, um, I totally agree, especially, you know, when is this painting made 1945? Um, space was extremely unknown. Um, yeah. And it was quite literally the, the, the next frontier. I mean, after World War II, um, the United States and the Soviet Union were kind of uh, getting ready to brawl for the, for the space race. Um, and I think that kind of comes out in here. Um, well, it's yeah. Yeah. Go with what you were going to say. Well, no, I mean, like, like you're saying as it's the lead up to the space race, because, you know, nobody landed on the moon till 1969. Uh, Sputnik was, if I recall correctly, around 1950. Right. So like we were just gearing up, looking forward to that exploration of space. And I imagine that was kind of in this time. That was a part of the zeitgeist, to use the big fancy word, which means the spirit of the times, zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. Anytime you use big words, you just automatically sound smart. But I, I like to I like to think about like what was life like at that time? What were people thinking about? What were people focused on? And that's one of the things that it took me a long time to understand and appreciate about abstract expressionism because the old joke of abstract expressionism is it kind of looks like something your two-year-old would do and you wouldn't even put it on the fridge and yet it's hanging in the museum. Um, But I think what I came to appreciate as I studied art more is by removing those representational or recognizable elements, we get rid of the things that tie it to a certain time and place and culture. Like, you know, when I see pictures of myself as a kid, I know I was a victim of some terrible nineties fashion with my, my hair cut to look like a mushroom and my jeans that were three feet wider than me. But when I, when I see something like this, these drips of paint, the colors, colors don't really go out of style. You know, the colors, the textures, and, and that subject of like space and the vastness of that, it's something that's sort of timeless and cuts across all different cultures and everybody can relate to that feeling of just awe-inspiring nature. And, at the and that's same, what I appreciate. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, and at the same time, you know, technology is just getting more advanced to where um, hyper-realistic um, objective paintings, you know, you can take a picture and see a picture of something. Like, we don't necessarily need to have a have a really well-trained artist detail um, in paint and on canvas what they saw. Um, and I think I, there's probably been stuff like art historians that have made this argument that, you know, the invention and perfection of the photograph um, led to more abstract pieces of artwork. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, um, that's been a, a running theme of mine is that progression from just the way that since the the mid 19th century and the advent of photography 
painters in some ways probably tried, if nothing else, for self-preservation, thought about what can I do that the camera can't? And the answer's always been imagination. And it's become increasingly imaginative and expressive. And this is one of those things that I think pushed those ideas as far as it could go, you know, like, and, and, and that's what I love about it being the Milky way, because it's just like, it is literally as far as you can imagine, (laughs) like the vast reaches of space. Um, And I, I think it works beautifully also just as a composition, I like conceptually, that's what I appreciate about the piece, the experimentation, the boldness of it. Um, and the innovation behind it, but also just as a work of art, like the, the sort of marbly texture, the way it looks like there's, there's this churn to it. It's a little bit active. It's very colorful without the colors getting too muddy. Um, you know, we see the, there is almost a sense of depth to it because those pops of bright, warm, yellow lines and everything like that it does seem to be in front of the blues. I think because cooler colors tend to recede and warmer colors tend to be pulled forward in the picture plane and there's higher contrast between them and all of that sort of stuff. Like we see the, in the back, the quote unquote background colors, we see like blues that fade into green and a little bit of maroon and things like that. Like those colors that flow one into the next and then we see these just like shocks of like drips of yellow on top of that. And, and that high contrast, that separation helps to create that sense of depth, even in something that, like I said, there is no discernible subject matter or focal point. And it something that I was just thinking, I kind of got lost into it for a second while you were talking. Um, yeah. it, it looks like it wants to push out like it wants to push out of the canvas almost like it wants to keep expanding. It wants to, I don't know if I'm associating that just with the term Milky way and you know, the idea that the universe is just always expanding, but I was looking at it for, for a second and I was starting to get that feeling too, that it wanted to move away, move out of its confined space. Um, well, yeah. 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 And I think that's true. I I think because when artists title a work, it's generally not, by accident. Like it is meant to, to help you make connections and help you to interpret it. But also because of that technique of the all over painting, it is running off the edges of the picture plane. You can see like the, the paint, you imagine the paint just keeps going. It does have that sort of kinetic feel to it. Like, you know, I, I feel like I'm watching a paint explosion happen, you know? Um, and is there anything else you want to say about this piece? Um, no, I, other than, you know, maybe, um, I used to be one of those people that was like, Oh, a two year old could do this. Um, (laughs) I used to be one of those people. Um, so did I until, until I, I studied abroad in London for a semester and I went to the Tate modern and I was like, okay, there's a little bit more to it than just, yeah, I, and you know, I don't know if part of that is um, seeing it in person um, rather than a photograph of it uh, or, or, or a scanning of it. But um, I'm glad that I changed my ways before this episode because uh, I would have come on here and said like, whatever. 
Um, but I love this painting. It, it looks fantastic. It is definitely worth when you can looking at these pieces in person because you are right. There is something lost in translation in the photograph. And I think part of it is the scale of these works. Um, you know, these are generally very large scale works and they are for a reason because when you see it in this massive form, it kind of overwhelms you. And it, it has like just a, it has this gut level impact when you're, when it occupies your entire field of vision as you're standing in front of this monumental work. Um, this one, I think, is not as large as, say, Pollock's tended to be. Um, but I, I think she was working, if I recall correctly, around like five feet, give or take. Oh, okay. So, like, you know, a good size. Um, and and I, I think that is a really good point, though, when you're able to see see these pieces in the museum, because it is very different. It, um, that's really true of all works, but, you know can't expect everyone to see it in a museum some people just listen to me you know, <laughs> ramble and and thank you to those of you who do and i'm wrapping it up i want just a three-point rating scale and where should this hang the loo is this something to look at the lab is this something to learn from or the loo british for the bathroom yeah there's the a loo joke in there somewhere yeah. oh that's terrible this is a bit of a tough one. Um, I think I'm going to go with the Louvre, though. Yeah. Um, I, while you were talking, like, when we first looked at this painting, um, I was a little bit reverting back to my, oh, a two-year-old could do this, but you kept talking about it, and I kept looking at it, <laughs> and it started to, like, the wire started to click. Um, and... I don't know. Art's just one of those things for me, and I'm assuming for most people, where you might not be able to explain why you enjoy it, but you do enjoy yeah. it. And I do enjoy this one. And I think it should be um, honored in, in a place like the Louvre. Isn't it in the MoMA? or? I believe that? this one's in MoMA, yeah. Okay. So, perfect. It deserves it. Yeah, I, I do feel like this belongs in a place of prominence like the museum. Um, you know, I also do enjoy looking at this piece for, for several different reasons. Um, and I guess just for the sake of the, the podcast and creating needless conflict, I'm going to disagree <laughs> with you and say I would put this in the lab. Um, and for me, it's because this was a piece of innovation that I think... I think it's really strong and there's something about it that I can't put my finger on that I would like to see pushed further. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think it's because the fact that the, the colors are a little bit, there's a little bit of neutral uh, mixed into these colors. Like it's not like a super saturated, bold yellow or a bright blue. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I'd like to see a little bit bolder and more intensity in the hues. Um, and also I'd like to see a little bit more put into like maybe larger scale, maybe, maybe a little bit more experimental technique in here. I feel like this is a piece where 
she's experimenting and she's found something really good, but it, it needs to go even further to get to that next level. And maybe that, that even further is in scale, make this, you know, 20 feet wide, or maybe it is a little bit more in terms of techniques, maybe, you know, use a, a toothbrush to get the the spray of, of dots and stuff like that to go along with the, the Milky Way theme. Um, maybe it's, like I said, bolder, more saturated colors. Maybe that's just me um, nitpicking because I'm trying to find a way to disagree with you <laughs> when you said this is a brilliant piece. And fundamentally, I agree, but, you know, what's a discussion without conflict? I was about to say, uh, people, listeners, people, audiences, and, and stories <laughs> enjoy conflict. It's yeah. more exciting that way. It is. Um, although I guess we're fundamentally ending up at the same place, even though you started with a more negative opinion, <laughs> and I'm <laughs> trying to muster a negative opinion. Um, <laughs> it all seems to go full circle. But uh, thank you very much for taking time to meet with me today and talk about Janet Sobel, a lesser known artist who is starting to get her due once again. And Garrett McCorkle, listeners, if you get a chance, listen to No Country for History. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great time. I really appreciate it. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.